welcome once again to the worship of our Lord. My name is Dave Dorst. I'm the associate pastor. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you after the service. Now, we've come this morning to the fourth of our sermon series, fourth text that is one of the misunderstood and misused uh, passages in Scripture. This series will take us through the end of May. And so far, we've learned that it all started in the garden. But we've been looking at passages, we've realized that it's not always wrong to judge, to spiritually judge things. We've learned that we don't have to wait for other people to enjoy God's presence. And we've learned that we can't woodenly apply a passage of scripture directed at Israel several thousand years ago straight to us unless we want to wait 70 years for it to come true. So if you've missed any of those, you can catch up on our website podcast. This morning we turn to John chapter 14, which is part of the greater teaching and prayer of Jesus that that fills four chapters for us uh, in our Bibles. But it's in between, it's Monday, Thursday, in between when Jesus had the Passover meal, washed the disciples' feet, and before he's arrested, betrayed and arrested. And so in the passage we're coming to, John 14, 12 through 14 is what it says on your bulletin. We're going to actually read through 18 because there's some real good context there. Um, But essentially, Jesus has been talking right before this about how no one comes to the Father except through him because Jesus is in the Father. Father is in Jesus. So we come now to verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And continuing for a few more verses, if you love me, You will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal and merciful God, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light unto our paths. So I pray that you would open and illuminate our minds this morning, that we may better understand your word, and that our lives may be conformed to what we understand. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. I remember when I was a youth pastor down in Florida, I was part of a kind of a small gathering of other youth pastors, ministry leaders, and for some reason I was designated to close in prayer. And uh, as I, I just kind of abruptly closed whatever I was praying for, amen. And one of the guys sitting kind of close to me 
leaned over and said, sure hope God heard that because you didn't say in Jesus' name. And I must have had some dumb, stunned look on my face because I wasn't used to being critiqued, at least not that quickly, on my prayers. Uh, and then he, he quickly kind of added, whatever, there's no formula. Thanks for praying. And so the question this morning, the focus of this sermon, from what we've read, particularly verse 13, verse 14, does tacking in Jesus' name on the end of a prayer guarantee that it's going to be done? I mean, verse 14 says pretty plainly, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? End of story. Well, we all know that taking this idea to its logical extremes, we, we know that that's not how prayer works, right? Please, Lord, I need $10 million tomorrow in Jesus' name. Lord, make my enemies move to Siberia and everybody that's left like me in Jesus' name. Lord, can I play for the Golden State Warriors in Jesus' name? We all know that that's not how it works, right? But we, we kind of have this suspicion. We wonder if it's really the key to our more modest prayers, too. All right, keep my family healthy. Keep my kids out of trouble. Keep my parents off my back. Um, get me into my number one college in Jesus' name. And we also kind of wonder the reverse, don't we? Sort of like that other pastor, that if we don't put in Jesus' name on our prayers, does that mean that God doesn't hear them? That he doesn't have to answer them because we didn't use the secret code? Well, let's think through this. And the first thing I want to understand about this passage and about the, kind of the theology of prayer and the, the totality of the teaching of Scripture is that words by themselves don't have power. God does. Now let's just start there. Words don't have the power. God does. And the reason I say that is because you might have heard some teaching in the past, all right? There's, uh, there's preachers that have taught that there's a sort of magic in this promise and in just sort of saying the right words. Um, you, some of you may remember Kenneth Hagin from the 80s or the 90s, whenever he taught. Uh, here's, here's what he said. Did you ever stop to think about having faith in your own faith? Evidently, God had faith in his faith because he spoke the words of faith and they came to pass. Evidently, Jesus had faith in his faith because he spoke to the fig tree and what he said came to pass. In other words, Having faith in your words is having faith in your faith. That's what you've got to learn to do to get things from God. Have faith in your faith. I hope you noticed the subtle or not so subtle heresy there. You don't need to put your faith in God who may not do exactly what you want him to do. You just put your faith in your own faith. And, and the power of your words oftentimes is taught to compel, compel God to give you what you want. 
because he's supposedly bound himself to obey you. This is also known as the name it and claim it theology. Blab it and grab it. What I confess, I possess. Uh, And sort of bound up with this idea also is that you can speak and write things into existence. I remember way back, I used to watch Survivor a few seasons. And uh, there was one winner on Survivor who said, I wrote down my prayer to the Lord that I was going to win this thing. And that's what propelled me to victory. You know, two weeks ago, I wrote down that the Steelers were going to win the AFC championship (laughs) game. And that didn't happen. It's actually a good thing the Steelers aren't in the Super Bowl today because the theology maybe would be a little different. I think I would be naming and claiming (laughs) the victory. And I am praying against a certain team. But um, not hard. But this, this whole idea is not only poor theology, but it's damaging. It's potentially dangerous Because people are led to believe that they have power to control things if they just believe strong enough. I mean, think about someone in your family gets cancer. You start praying for them. Why do you pray for them? Naturally, you want God to heal them of the cancer that could kill them. And if you've been taught that you just need to have faith in your faith, and that God is automatically bound to give your requests if you say in Jesus' name, you will be expecting that family member to get well, probably soon. And then if they don't, you'll wonder if you did it right or if if other people's prayer was lacking and or if you, you don't have enough faith. And God forbid, if they get worse, then you think that maybe you've sinned or that God is angry at you, is withholding his blessing and his answers to your prayers. You get through all this stuff. And as much as I'd love to be able to tell you that everything you want in life is guaranteed if you just use the right words and have the right attitude and faith, we can't do it. We can't isolate this verse and apply it so woodenly to our prayer lives. We've got to weigh the context, the entire teaching of Scripture And you may not realize, but this is not the only place where Jesus uses that phrase, in my name. There are several other places he says that. And it's got much broader applications than to prayer. And so you can see in your outline, I've listed Matthew 18, 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So welcoming others. Also, in the, in the area of shepherding and, and confrontation, one of our passages that we've heard in the last couple of weeks, Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Mark 9, 39 and 41 is, is Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So the area of compassion and miracles. 
And then finally, John 14, 26 talks about the Holy Spirit coming, the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. From these verses, it seems that what the phrase in my name, in Jesus' name, really means is that something or someone is consistent with who Jesus is. That it lines up with what he taught and his kingdom purposes. That it's been given his authority. That it's in God's will and for his glory. When, while we're talking about these verses being about prayer, they're, they're more than just about prayer. And here's where I want to deal mostly with, with our passage. And we see that when when believers do kingdom work, Jesus promises that he'll help. That seems to be the context. Um, It's not just about prayer. It's about deeds that Jesus' followers were going to do. Go back to verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. By the way, this could probably get its own sermon about misunderstood. If you've ever wondered if that means, hey, I should be like healing lepers and raising people from the dead because Jesus made this promise that I would be doing greater things than that. What's, what's wrong? Relax. It's not exactly what it means, right? I think Jesus is teaching here that his followers would see the church built, that they would see People come to faith in Christ in even greater numbers than happened when he was on earth because Jesus hadn't died and come back and defeated death yet. And so after the cross and the resurrection, the Spirit's power would be unleashed, the church would grow. I think that's what Jesus is referring to there. But Jesus says, you're gonna do great works And then the very next next verses are, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And I think those are connected. Prayer seems to be implied, yeah, it's, it's prayer, but it's in the context of the disciples attempting to do these great works. Because also, if you, if you look at the next verses, that's why I tacked on 15 through 18, is that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And right after that, Jesus says, the Father will send the Spirit to be their helper, to be with them forever. So there seems to be a context of the promise of Jesus doing anything you ask is because you are attempting to accomplish things that he has commanded and that are spiritual works. So asking anything is connected to the disciples trying to accomplish God's work in this world with the spirit inside of them. And you notice also the end of verse 13, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. These requests are to bring God great glory. When those prayers are sent up that match what God wants to do in the world through his obedient, spirit-filled followers, 
that bring him glory, God answers and works. This is all part of the greater teaching that Jesus is not abandoning his people just because he's about to leave the earth. Right? He will not leave them as orphans. Verses 18, verse 18 says, he gives them the spirit, but he remains active. God is moving, God is moving still. He always has, he always wills, one of the songs we do. And he will be with us even to the end of the age. So when we put that context and, and those conditions around this verse, we, we can look pretty selfish, pretty short-sighted when we think that God is obligated to answer those, Lord, please give me a cool sports car type prayers. The person who loves Jesus obeys and finds joy in doing what Jesus asked him to do and doesn't treat Jesus as a celestial vending machine who exists to meet our wants and our desires. Jesus is promising his power, his resources when we work for the kingdom, when we step out in faith, share the gospel, love people, pray for them in Jesus' name. And 1 John 5.14, part of our responsive reading said, this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now the test of any prayer, according to William Barclay, one of the commentators I read is, can I make this prayer in the name of Jesus? No one for instance, could pray a prayer of personal revenge, of personal ambition, of desire to surpass at someone else's expense in the name of Jesus. When we pray, we must always ask, can I honestly pray this in the name of Jesus? Or am I praying this out of my own personal desires and aims and ambitions? The prayer which can stand the test of that consideration And the prayer which in the end says, thy will be done, is answered. But the prayer which is based on self cannot expect to be heard because it is prayed in the name of self and not in the name of Jesus. Now I realize there's there's a danger here. I don't want you to go away thinking, oh, I can never make a selfish prayer again. I can never ask God for anything for me. It has to all be all very pious, pray for everyone else around me and uh, help the church. And, but it's okay. I want you, we want to ask for things, right? The old song, take it to the Lord in prayer. Um, go ahead and ask for that new job, for better health, more friends, popularity, a new iPhone, whatever. Go ahead and ask. All right, listen, God is a good father who wants to give his children good gifts. Matthew 7, 11 still is true. If you then who are evil know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That's still true. But 
recognize that God is not bound in any way to grant you these things. And there might be very good reasons that he doesn't give them to you. Or at least not on your timetable. And, and don't let your faith be shaken. Don't, don't jump to the conclusion that if there was a loving God that I would have those things that I asked. I mean, I've heard people's despair that, oh, I, I used to believe in God, but I prayed for this and that and it never happened. You can't assume that God has to do what you want. You have no idea what God is doing in your life. Tim Keller talks in one of his uh, sermons about the Lord's Prayer, about how we always think that what we want is best. And, and really, it's kind of uh, intertwined with this idea that we, we really wish we had a genie's lamp to rub and, and just wish for whatever we want. And uh, Tim Keller says that, you know, if you ever thought about a five-year-old with a lamp and you saw him rubbing it about, you better run because you have no idea what he's going to pray for. And then, well, okay, what about a 15-year-old? Oh, you better run too. No telling what they're going to pray for. But, but surely by the time you're like 25, you're mature enough not to know to ask for all these things for yourself. I don't know. Tim Keller says, I don't think we're ever in a position where Aladdin's lamp or the genie's lamp where we just pray and wish for things and they come true. That's, we're never going to be in an age where we, that's going to be good for us. Because when you're 25, you think, man, what an idiot I was at 15. And then when you're 35, oh, what an idiot I was at 25. And, and you're always an idiot. That's what Tim Keller said, not, not me. But I think his point is that we don't have the perspective at any age that we need. And to remember that God grants prayer as a father who knows what we need, not as a genie. That's why we start the Lord's Prayer with our Father, to center us, to remind us. There's going to be things you want, ways that you think life needs to happen, that you can lift those up to God in prayer. But God sees the whole picture where we just see parts. Think of one of those thousand-piece puzzles, and all you've got is like three pieces. God sees the whole thing. And he guides you through life with his perspective, not yours. I'm sure if it was up to us, we would all skip pain and trials in life, right? We'd want to fast forward through those times, especially when we're stuck in God's waiting room for different things. And yet, the deepest blessings, the truest, truest growth in our lives often comes because of pain, through difficulties, not being given everything that we want. At some point, we need to realize that we actually have no idea what would be best for us in this life, but that God does. 
And so we trust the heart of God and come back again and again. And we pray for what we want, what we think we need, but ultimately we say, not my will, but yours be done. Now, who said that first? Right, that's from Luke 22, 42. Not my will, but yours be done. It was Jesus' conclusion to his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had been in anguish knowing that he would be giving up his life and be separated from the Father and that he would bear the weight of the sins of his people on the cross. He knew what he was about to face. This is right before he's arrested, tried, falsely convicted, beaten, tortured, killed. He knew what he was facing. He knew the physical the emotional, and worst of all, the spiritual pain that he would be going through would be so enormous. And so in the garden, he asks the father, can I skip that? He doesn't say that. He says, take this cup of suffering from me. And yet, he knew it was the only way to save his people And that this was the main reason that he had come to earth. So his prayer went from take this cup of suffering, but not my will, yours be done. And we are so thankful that Jesus prayed that. Because God sent him to the cross for you, for me. In that death, all the sins of his people for all time were placed on Jesus. Our salvation was purchased. Our sins were paid for because Jesus submitted to his Father's will. His human fear and weakness did not overrule God's will because he recognized the Father's loving care despite what were difficult circumstances. And so this morning, we celebrate that. We will eat of Jesus' broken body. We'll drink from his shed blood around the table together. And as we pray in Jesus' name, and as we pray, not my will, but yours be done, we model ourselves after our great Savior, And we walk in obedience to him. And all who believe that God is a good father and that Jesus hears and answers the prayers that are done in his name and empowers us through the spirit said, amen. Take a moment to pray. I'll close this. Lord God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this series. Um, 
God, I pray that we would be examining ourselves for how we read Scripture and how we twist it to make it say what we want to say or if we just don't study it enough to really understand it. Lord, we know you give us the Spirit to help us understand the Scriptures. And so we pray that we would put in the work to understand it. And I pray that you would use this sermon series to teach us uh, maybe some of the things that we thought were true. And so this morning as we think about that idea that you have to give us whatever we ask in your name, I pray that you would keep us from thinking that somehow we bind you and that you have to obey us, that you have to grant our prayers because we've used the right words. Lord, help us to see that what we're really called to is to seek your will, to seek what you're doing in this world and run for it and join in and join the great works that you're doing around us. And when we seek your will, we seek your glory, Jesus is with us. Jesus works with us. The Spirit empowers us. God, that is an awesome promise. Way better than getting the trivial things that we ask for, getting even sometimes the important things we ask for that you know that maybe we're not ready for or you have a different plan and you say no or you say wait. Lord, we know you hear our prayers. All of those who are united to Christ are part of your family and you hear your children and you grant us all good things. But sometimes you grant patience. Sometimes you grant suffering. Sometimes you grant the things we didn't ask for or that we prayed wouldn't happen that way. And we pray that we would accept those things. That we would see your hand. Because we know that when we get to heaven, we will look back and go, of course. Of course that's how he answered that prayer. So, Lord, thank you. Teach us and bless us as we take, partake of your supper this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.